Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In last week's programme, former senior police officer Steve Vickers talked to me about triads. This week we talk about the infamous kidnapping of businessman Teddy Wang, who was kidnapped twice, once in 1983 and the second time in 1990. He was never returned and was declared dead in 1999. Teddy Wang made his money in the pharmaceuticals trade before moving into property and building up the China Chem Corporation with his wife, the colourful businesswoman Nina Wang. They'd known one another since school. Steve Vickers joined the Royal Hong Kong Police Force in 1975 and would serve for 18 years, including a stint as head of the Criminal Intelligence Bureau. He worked on 28 kidnapping cases and one of those was the second kidnapping of Teddy Wang in 1990. Steve Vickers is the chief executive of Steve Vickers and Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. The Teddy Wang case is a truly unique situation, one that I haven't hadn't seen before. The others tended to follow a pattern. Wealthy family, nearly always a boy. In fact, I only ever did one case involving a female victim. Typically, they were young children, kidnapped on their way to or on their way from school, typically a demand made almost immediately, and in many cases recovered quietly without too much difficulty. Occasionally the kidnappers were clumsy or brutal or nasty, or the victim in one particular case just recognised who one of them was, and then the outcome could be pretty, pretty awful. So that was the standard Hong Kong pattern. Uh, I found ways thereafter to, to try and mitigate the risk a bit. One was to talk to schools as to what to look for, security arrangements to, to get us slightly ahead of the ball if we can. We ran training for different police groups so that they, they understood how to react to these things. Um, not getting the media in the middle of one of these is, is important because it, it, can, it can really just turn things on their, on their head. So it's best if the family stays silent at that point rather than launches an appeal? Well, every case is different and I would never say never, but my experience is it's better to stay quiet, stay cool, deal with it step by step. In the commercial ones that I deal with now outside the police environment, often I'm called in because an insurance policy has been triggered so typically a day has gone by sometimes, or two. The first two days are absolutely critical. In a commercial sort of situation, it's important to enter into some dialogue with, with the other side. So how do you mean an insurance has been triggered? For example, corporates, which is the, the, nowadays what I tend to do most of the time, although I do do some super net worth rich family work, but typically corporates will have a policy. They'll have an insurance policy with, with a provider, typically out of Lloyds of London, or from the US, from one of the, the major US carriers through, through a broker. That policy would include my organisation as, as response consultants. So if something happens, the company concerned would report it and we would be called and asked to. So that's how the policy typically works. So, I mean, yes, over the years, I mean, we had a more recent one, which was a young woman um, in, in absolute recent years, um, but predominantly male. Uh, among those, of course, famously was uh, Lee Ka-shing's son, Victor Lee. Mm. But if we look at Teddy Wang, he's Nina Wang's husband and makes his money in pharmaceuticals, later moves into property, born in 1933. He's first kidnapped in 1983 and um, and then returned. Um, he's then kidnapped again in 1990, which had a more tragic outcome. He was declared legally dead 
in 1999. A likely scenario is, but never proven, is that uh, his body was thrown overboard. But uh, quirkily, I was reading also how Nina Wang's assistant says that Teddy was still phoning Nina until the year 2000. But dealing with something like that, I mean, massive amount of money, crime, and uh, Nina Wang is a very forceful personality. She's also a very successful businesswoman. So you had all of those uh, factors to deal with when you're brought in to this kidnapping case in 1990. Actually, how we were brought in is not as the papers would have you believe. Uh, it wasn't that somebody reported us and asked us to, to respond. We were looking at something completely different. Um, of course, you're in the police force at this point. Right, I was head of criminal intelligence. Um, we were running another intelligence operation completely unrelated to this or anything else. It's not a big secret. We were listening to a couple of telephones legally. And over the lines came discussion about something happening to Teddy. And I thought, that's interesting. As head of criminal intelligence, normally people would tell me if, if something like that had happened. So we listened on a little bit and had a look and became aware that at least four or five days earlier something had happened to Teddy. So it was never formally reported to us. I then sent somebody around disguised as somebody else to go to the home and enter into um, some dialogue with, with, uh, with Nina. And eventually, after a bit of squeezing, it came out that Teddy was gone. So that was how we got into the case. It wasn't the, the normal event of somebody calling us and, and us being able to respond. Thereafter, I, was, you know, I, I plugged in all the usual resources and mobilised um, what we had. But what it meant was that the bad guys had a, um, a five-day lead, which was unfortunate. So what were the circumstances of his kidnapping, as far as you know? Um, well, again, this is all through either arrested people, fragments of information, bits of CCTV. Um, but it would appear that he, um, the second time he was taken, that he'd been under observation for some time. That he went to the uh, he went to the gym and then on his way he got into his car. He, he was quite a frugal chap and he hadn't spent a lot on security. I mean, you, you might think if you're a billionaire and you've been kidnapped once before that perhaps it might be a better idea to, to spend a few dollars on um, on securing yourself, but he hadn't. Yeah, because he he was actually kidnapped in the same Mercedes, I think, as as seven years earlier or something like that. And and in 1983, in fact. Nina Wang is also in the car with him. She's actually shoved into the back and um, forced to wear a blindfold before her husband is, is kidnapped. This is a, a running trend, though. I find that there's any number of um, Hong Kong super rich who really don't spend on themselves. Um, and maybe it's because they've started from really poor background or something. But, um, and he was also a creature of habit. He certainly was. But on this particular occasion, clearly he had been coldly and clinically targeted. He was followed for a while, he was stopped, uh, the car was stopped, was a firearm and an axe that was used, he was dragged out of the car and then taken off to a, uh, a safe house briefly where I believe he was drugged uh, and then moved to a boat. Uh, unfortunately, this was all in the five days before we even found that. What's so important about that first 48 hours? Well, a whole series of things. In a standard kidnapping, and I've never thought that this one was a standard one, but in a standard kidnapping, the goal is to establish communications as, as, as quickly as possible, establish a proof of life as early uh, as possible, and to get to create some form of dialogue discipline so that horrible though it may be and nasty though it may be that that 
boring dialogue leads to resolution in my experience and, and the way to do that is to ensure that after every call you arrange a time for another call that little little I don't want to give away too much, but the little goals can be accomplished uh, on a steady basis. And the longer it goes on, the more dialogue that occurs, the greater the probability of a uh, positive outcome. Whereas if it's all over the place and there are people phoning different people, there's no centralization of the communications, it can go really wrong. So if you've got somebody calling a company and the company has a hunting system, anybody can pick it up. Now one people know, two people know, ten people know. Sometimes they call the family, sometimes they call the boss, sometimes they call the school. This is, this is a mess uh, and this, this uh, and leads to, can lead to terrible problems. So that's at its most simple, but it's, best, it's better if, if we get involved early, at least to, if not calm it down, to, to set the rules of engagement a bit more clearly so we're better th- likely to get a better outcome. So describe to me in April 1990, you're pulled into this. Do you go then and meet Nina Wang? Well, I, no, I, as I say, because of the, the, the manner in which I'd found it out, I mean, I didn't want to say, hello. Uh, I was listening. I was listening to your phone last night, and this is what... It, but, I mean, that's the truth. Uh, we, I sent somebody around in a disguise who was able to communicate, and thereafter we, we got some... We applied many appropriate resources, and we were able to then have a look at what was going on. But, of course, by now, he's already... We, we now know he's already out in the, in, the, in, in the high seas. After a while, phone calls... So we managed to isolate the, the, the calls and we got the calls to come into a, a central spot. So now we know that the calls and the communications are going to, to one spot, so that's already positive. Mrs Wang was clearly upset. The calls then gradually began to come in. Again, I, I've never accused myself of or promised that I'm an expert at everything, but I have an idea as to how, what the rules of the game are and how the communications should be. And typically, the kidnapper's goal is is money. Our side's goal is to get the the victim back. And normally, dialogue should go on in a way that is sufficient to communicate sufficient evidence. So normally, you get, this is how much money we want. This is when we want it. This is how we would like it delivered. This is where it is. So one would expect that sort of dialogue to be present. And at the beginning, it sounded a bit like that. But I felt that the people making the call were slightly distant from the event, completely unable to offer us any comfort as to a proof of life. And the call seemed fragmented. However, they continued, and it's the only game in town, and you just have to to dig into it. At the same time, obviously, we would be looking at all recent events around the family, so you'd you'd attack the bridge from both ends. One would be reactively, but the goal, if you can, is to get ahead of the game by finding out something associated with who the kidnappers might be uh, so that we can you know, we can get ahead, because otherwise you'd be constantly reactive. Now this is remember 1990s, not not the the greatest technical. What did you actually have in 1990? I think I had a really good pager. <laughs> no, well we had uh, so again. So I mean, also I mean I don't know whether you can. Uh, but, I mean it is 1990, but um, what, how did you tap phones in those days? Did you just well, put a jack I, I, in the back? I, I, That's what I did I, for a radio. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're, not, you're not supposed to do that. Whatever we did was was appropriate under the appropriate uh, ordinance. Um, in those of the days uh, in the, the the beginning of digital. Um, so in the old days, without giving any great secrets away, one would go to the telephone exchange and, a, and apply a, uh, something like a crocodile clip and it would run to wherever you were running the operation from. 
But digital was just coming in. But you've got no mobile phones. They, they were just coming. They, yeah, it was all it, it was all all a different age. ATMs were around, but there weren't very many of them. Not many people, um, you know. So it's just it was a yeah, a fun. However, yeah, I, I do find that fascinating when you think about how you would follow the money now. Yes. Um, and all the tra tracking mechanisms that you'd put on in terms of internet, everything. Um, but yeah, going back 30 years, um, I mean, yeah, you know, it's not um, it's not so long ago, but it's uh, <laughs> I say to try and make myself feel better. Me too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, really, I mean, I, I wouldn't have had a mobile phone in those days. No way. The Internet was way off for, for your average person. Indeed. Um, so on this particular case, the kidnappers eventually on one of the calls gave a bank account number and started to make demands. So they'd opened a bank account under a, a false name. And they made a demand of 60 million US dollars, which was pretty extraordinary in those days. And obviously this had been going on for the five days that I'd not been aware of it, plus the time that I was now aware of it. I became increasingly uncomfortable with the, with the tone of these calls. They, they were at roughly the same time, which was positive. The content was nearly always the same. Uh, and it was as if they were transmitting but not receiving. We began to get ahead of the game technically a bit. I had some support. Again, the, the Criminal Intelligence Bureau was the most advanced bureau in Hong Kong, CIB at that time, I think. And we had got excellent technical support from the technical advisor and others. And we did some wizardry here and there. Uh, the digital world was just kicking in. And through some magic, we input all of Nina's landlines and the bad guys used the digital system. Anyway, through some digital magic, we, we got a number early on as to somebody who might be associated. We then started to look at where the calls were coming from, and the calls were coming from a different city each day on the mainland. These are the days where if you wanted to get data from a telephone exchange, uh, let alone the fact cooperating with the public security in Beijing and, and Point South, to get that it would take you 72 hours, even if everybody wanted 120% to support you. So in parallel, we got in touch through our liaison offices with the guys on the mainland, and they were actually very helpful. And, uh, and an amazing act of cooperation in those days, I had my people in their phone exchanges for a while. But we were 72 hours behind every <laughs> behind each call. Later, we found out that the uh, the caller group was um, on a package tour on their way so many cities. Uh, what, just to stay mobile? To stay mobile. Right. And they were operating from a written script. So day one, you phoned up from here. Yeah. Day two, you phoned up from here. That was why it was frustrating from a negotiation point of view, because these guys actually couldn't negotiate because all they had were the script that they'd been given. So they basically had a script per day. So from that, eventually, they came up with a with the bank account number that they wanted the money to be to be paid in. N Nina decided she wanted to pay. Myself, had, as head of criminal intelligence and also the, the government per se, we didn't think it was a great idea. The bank were caught in the middle because they it's their client and, and ultimately it was her money. There was no legal reason why she couldn't pay. But from a, an experience point of view, I wanted her to understand that, that if we do not get a proof of life for this, that the money will be gone and nothing else would happen. Really, it was, it was double, a double mistake. The government supported my position. I think the bank probably got a phone call. In the end, I reached a, an accommodation with Nina, which was that we would pay 30 million, but in a methodology that perhaps might give us some bang for buck. 
So how were you going to do that? I said I wanted a lot of different currencies. So we went from, I think, 12 or 13 different currencies we, we, we fed into the account, which I knew would take a long time to occur. And my bet was that during that time, it is a lot of money, that they would dip the ATM and see, try and see whether the, the money was there or not. Remember, the calls were still coming. And this is when I recognised there was a bit of a lack of coordination between the calls and the payment, which led me to believe again that the callers were not in touch directly with, with the victim. We duly drip-fed in the money. Nina agreed to the methodology, and I cannibalised the surveillance network. And in those days, there weren't that many ATMs in Hong Kong. I think uh, one of our two major banks ran the ATM system. I think it was so what do you mean you cannibalised the surveillance system? Well, I split, the surve- I split them into two-person two teams all over Hong Kong. Just to watch ATMs? To watch ATMs. And then we coordinated between the bank, ourselves, the ATM. So they, it, it, we, oh, but what are they looking for, a bloke well, at an ATM? It was certainly a, um, a colourful and uh, testing time. So, we, of course, we missed the first dip where they, they would dip to see. And we missed the second dip where they dipped to see. And we missed the third dip. And we missed the fourth dip. But by then I'd begun to work out that the probability was they were within certain other areas. So I was able to pull some more troops in and and allocate them differently. And eventually, I think the fifth or sixth dip, we actually eyeballed one of them while he still had his his hands in the the machine. It was clear to me by now that this was a cell structure that was behind this, not not, not a gang that knew everything. So obviously I didn't... What does that mean? It means that, that there was a central command and control to this and different elements that were doing different things. So each one wouldn't know what... So Indeed. you'd have... Your, you've got some guys in China being told to pay to make some calls and that's all they know? Correct. And then somebody else perhaps responsible for moving money, somebody else responsible for snatching the victim and handing that on to somebody else. So that's, that's what I mean by a, a cell structure. So clearly arresting the guys isn't, isn't... So we had to hang on to them surveillance-wise, which was a challenge. Anyway, we, we remarkable surveillance team, managed to hang on long enough. The guy went down onto the MTR. Just in time management, another crew picked them up and we actually found and identified one of the, uh, one of the kidnapping group, followed them all the way and kept him under, under right, surveillance. so he's still moving freely. He's still moving freely, but at least now we know uh, from that and from where he lived and who he was... And he turned out to be a professional money launderer. From that, we then began to do some other technical stuff, and we tracked him to a, a very interesting gentleman called Mr. Chen Chi Wan. Mr. Chen was a, a member of the Taiwanese MJIB, which is the equivalent of the, the Taiwanese FBI. And he ultimately was the, was the centre. He was the command and control guy in charge of this. Obviously, nobody came back. The money was paid. cost $30 million dollars really, for me to get a run at one of the, the kidnappers. We left it, I think, maybe in 10 days, a little longer. In that time, we exploited the maximum possible intelligence we could get from this guy and from the, the other likely players. We had a team on the ground in Taipei. Again, it was remarkable. We were cooperating with the public security in, in Beijing. We had a team on the ground in, in Taipei, plus what was going on in Hong Kong. And it was, you know, we, we just got a lot of support from people. I mean, obviously you're getting a lot of cooperation coming in from other places, but as a kidnapping drags on, are you then having to make decisions, how long, how long can I keep these teams out there? Well, the, the other is how long until the trail goes completely cold. We had the operations group inside, we put together some folders um, about all the knowledge that we had and all the people that were associated with it. 
Taiwan side was a bit sensitive because Chen was a serving Taiwanese MGIB officer. After some diplomacy, we, we managed to agree with them to take action against that group at the same time as we took action here and in China. How do you mean? Who, who would be taking action against which group? Our own guys in Hong Kong, our own guys with help from the Chinese end. And, and cooperation with Taiwan, did you have to go through hoops or was it quite oh, yeah, straightforward? I got in a bit of trouble later because I'm a great believer in getting the job done. <laughs> uh, I did what I needed to do to get the job done. We managed to get the raids executed at the same time in Hong Kong and in Taiwan and on the mainland. We hit a hotel room in Taipei and inside was Mr Chen and others packing we recovered 95% of the ransom money, which was being packed into boxes. Amazingly, they looked to me like shoe boxes that have been made watertight, so obviously they were going to go on a boat next. So he was grabbed, banged to rights. In Hong Kong, we picked up the most of the others, but no sign of Teddy. So now we've got the bulk of the gang. The organiser, obviously, was somewhat sensitive at the uh, Taiwan end. And then it took another turn. It turned out that Mr. Chen Chi Wen was not just a... He was actually an agent handler in based in, in Hong Kong, uh, engaged in anti-mainland uh, activity. The MJIB is, was a Kuomintang outfit. His official job in, in Hong Kong was... So when you're saying handling agents, it's spies on the mainland? He, he was, and also he was writing reports saying that um, he was you know, undermining the country and that... And I read this, I thought we probably caught James Bond here or George Smiley or whatever, because it turned out that Mr. Chen was largely a fraud. He never went to the mainland. He's basically fiddling his expenses and was an out-and-out fraud. So I handed that piece, the, the Kuomintang piece, to, to a group in, um, in Special Branch who took that away, and they were obviously very excited at the beginning, only to find out that actually we were dealing with an utterly corrupt guy who had been filing false reports for, for years about what he was doing and spending the resources. But anyway, he was, he was well trained, however, uh, and he was at the centre of what happened. So he had had a team to do the initial kidnapping. He'd had a team to organise to, to receive the money. He'd had a team organised to go around China and make the phone calls on a daily basis. He had another crew, the boat crew, to move Teddy offshore. And each of these groups were operating on a cell basis. Obviously, there was some sensitivity as to him. So he stayed in Taiwan, but they ultimately sentenced him to life imprisonment. Uh, here in Hong Kong, I began to back off the case a bit and let the more overt units from, um, from organized crime group uh, interview the arrested people. And bit by bit, they revealed the story, which essentially was they'd planned it, how they'd watched him from the jockey club and then taken him uh, from his car, how he'd been drugged and then how he'd been taken to the boat. Their story consistently was that there was a, a mainland security vessel came close to them and that they panicked and threw Teddy uh, over the side. When he was drugged? Uh, whilst drugged. I kind of believe some of that, but the way this thing was constructed from the beginning, the way the, the phone calls had come in, it looked just like a, a real-life kidnapping, but there was no opportunity for normal dialogue. I mean, in a normal kidnapping case, not that there is a normal kidnapping case, yeah. but in the, the, the general course of events, if the goal is entirely money, the, the other side uh, want to make clear that you understand very clearly because that's the, whole, that's the whole goal. Here it was more fragmented than that, that's all I can say. But ultimately, they were all prosecuted successfully. And so uh, what, what do they end up being prosecuted for? Is it murder now? Kidnapping. 
It just kidnapping. Because it's difficult to prove murder of someone you, you haven't... But they got savage sentences. So were they keeping Teddy permanently on a boat? Was, what was? Are they transporting him somewhere, or the, the idea was just to keep him offshore? I'm not sure to this day whether or not the goal was always to kill him. The, the story was convenient that it was accidental... Uh, when the um, when the Chinese police boat uh, appeared, if so where did they? If, if it's a Chinese mainland Chinese, yeah, they went, well, they moved into Chinese waters. That's mm -hmm. all. I mean, it's very difficult to know where you are at any given point. The sad bit was, I think, it, had they reported it to us early, or at least in the, in the normal frame of times, the he would not have been in. Uh, he'd not already have been out in, in in Chinese waters, and we perhaps would have got quicker, faster, but we didn't. And and there's just the facts. I often looked at the source of Teddy's original funds, but I mean, I, I moved on and we caught, we caught the kidnappers. Chen was in custody in, in Taipei. Perhaps more could have been done, but you know, other priorities uh, continued in the 90s. If you remember, that were the times of a lot of armed robberies, people with you know, nutcases from the mainland um, shooting streets up. And I only had limited resources. I moved on to the next one, blissfully unaware of the of the the issue over Nina and the and the will. Yes, because I mean we have two things with that. I mean, first of all, she takes on her father-in-law because uh, you have the the ninety-one-year-old father-in-law, and he's saying this this handwritten will yeah. that, that Nina produces is not the one that uh, his you know he sort of said his son wasn't particularly romantic, so the, therefore it should be the will from nineteen sixty-eight. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, uh, sort of rumors that swirl around this this case um well i detached i detached having as far as we were concerned it was mission accomplished in terms of of um knocking out the the, the key perpetrators the whys and the wherefores and the will well that was a whole series of other uh, other activities obviously i kept an eye on it from from time to time um all i'd say it was it was highly suspicious and a lot different from any of the other kidnappings i'd ever done I was interviewing uh, another a former police officer recently in, about a big drugs haul and the fact that, you know, you don't have all the different uh, people involved in the drugs gang able to contact one another on mobile phone and everything, they're able to spring them at different homes was advantageous. But I'm just wondering, would they, have, I mean, online I suppose they would have been able to shift the funds a lot faster. Uh, well, clearly the whole, the whole world of online trading is has changed everything um, but I mean sophisticated I mean the, the more sophisticated ones I mean I deal with trust busting uh, people have taken large amounts of money from point A to point B offshore centres nowadays there's a lot less bearer bonds but the, 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 there is a whole world of, of um, complexity with this mostly in kidnappings though people want access to cool clean cash as quickly as they can Nowadays, the anti-money laundering regs can cause hiccups from their point of view uh, quite quickly. The, 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 there's a proliferation now of, of online bank, banks, which will need to be watched, which, we, you know, these are banks with no... With no um, but if the amounts are... I mean, we, we were talking here, demands of 60 million US and 30 million paid. I mean, these things do attract um, enormous attention. But the casinos and uh, the gaming syndicates do facilitate huge amounts of money moving all the time. Um, so, you know, I've had experience in, in, in watching payments that have gone through that route. What, just online? Yeah. Uh, well, not online, from gaming, from, from apparent wins in casinos or VIP rooms and the like. So is it, I mean, you know, I've, I've probably watched too many films, but then but is it a great big hold all full of chips or cash? 
Uh, it would depend. Uh, depends where you are and the level of sophistication. My thanks to Steve Vickers there, talking on the kidnapping and disappearance of Teddy Wang. I wonder what happened to him. Steve Vickers is the chief executive of Steve Vickers and Associates, a specialist political and corporate risk consultancy. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.